0: With today's class, we will begin discussion of the Sati Bhattana Sutta. In the Pali canon, there are places in which the Satipatthana Sutta occurs. In the Digha Nikaya, the collection of the long discourses, there occurs a version of the Sutta which is called the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. That is the great or longer version of the discourse, and then in the Majjhima Nikaya, the collection of the Buddha's middle-length discourses, there comes a middle-length version of the Satipatthana Sutta. The sutta that we have in this wheel booklet, number nineteen. This is the middle length version, translated from the Nikaya. But both versions of the Satipatthana Sutta are almost identical. The only difference is that the long version has a very detailed explanation of the section on the Four Noble Truths. Whereas the middle length version that we have here just has a very brief explanation, in fact, no explanation of the Four Noble Truths. It just mentions them. So when we come to the section on the Four Noble Truths, then I'll give full explanation. Then you'll get the longer version. Okay, first I should say just a few words about the title of the discourse. The expression Sati Bhattana is what we call in Pali a compound word. That is, it's made up by bringing together two other words and there are two ways to explain the expression sati according to one explanation it's a compound of sati which means mindfulness plus upatana which means setting up or establishment so in this case the title would become the establishment or setting up of mindfulness. Then the other way to explain the compound is as a combination of sati plus patana. Here the word patana has the meaning foundation or basis. So the title would then become the foundations of mindfulness. And both meanings seem to be applicable. This is the Buddha's teaching of the way to establish mindfulness, and when you establish mindfulness, you have to have a basis or foundation for it, and so it's also a teaching of the foundations of mindfulness. Okay, so now we turn from the title and we take the discourse itself. The discourse begins when the Blessed One, the Buddha, was living among the Kuru people, at a town called Kamasa Dhamma. It's said that the land of the Kuru people corresponds to what is now Uttar Pradesh in India. And they think that the capital of the Kuru people at that time is what is now Delhi in India. Okay, and then the Buddha addresses the monks, and he says, monks, and they reply, Venerable Sir. And then the Buddha speaks as follows. First, I'll read from the translation, then I'll explain. It says, This is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path for the attainment of Nibbana, namely, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. (laughs) A very important expression here is the Pali word, a kaino mugo, which is translated here, this is the only way. But I'm not sure that that is really the correct meaning. Because <laughs> I think, I take Eka, of course, means one, then Ayana is going, and then Mago is path. So, literally, this would mean a one-going path. And I take it to mean that this is a path going in one direction. It's like a one-way street. Not that it's the only path, though, eventually to reach Nibbana one has to practice Satipatthana. But rather the idea is that this is a straight or direct path which goes in only one direction. It's somewhat like a, maybe like a shortcut you might say instead of going by devious routes, you just take this direct or straight path which leads only in one direction. And that direction in which it leads is to the purification of beings. That is, what keeps us unpurified are the kilesas, the defilements, greed, hatred, ignorance, conceit, laziness, desire, selfishness, jealousy, pride, arrogance, many, many defilements and all of those defilements can be purified through the practice of Satipatthana. And these defilements are the cause of suffering and so by practicing Satipatthana one removes the defilements, which are the cause of suffering. And by doing so, one overcomes all the different types of suffering. Here we have sorrow and lamentation. That's soka Parideva. and then suffering and grief Dukkha Domenasa Then this practice of Satipatthana is said to be undertaken in order to reach the right path. The right path here is the Super mundane path, what's called the Lokutara Magga. That is the path of stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and arahatship. And so the practice of Sati Bhattana is the preliminary practice for reaching these supramundane paths that lead infallibly to liberation. And then by reaching the right path, then one is able to attain Nibbana, the full deliverance from suffering. So first the Buddha awakens our interests or he gets our attention by telling us the benefits that come from this practice that he's going to introduce then he gives the explanation what is that direct or straight path for the gaining of these benefits that is the four foundations of mindfulness Chitaro, Satipatthana or we could say the fourfold setting up of mindfulness. Then he raises the question, what are the four? And he will explain the four to be the body, feelings, consciousness or state of mind, and mental objects or dhammas. Now, first, one should understand what is mindfulness. In a way, it's... (laughs) very difficult to explain in words, either you know it through practice and experience, or you don't know no. it at all. But you could say that mindfulness is being aware of what is happening within oneself, or to oneself, at any given moment of experience. It's a kind of bending back the beam of attention upon one's own experience in order to illuminate the nature of one's own experience. All the time our mind is usually going outwards and becoming entangled in the various projects and undertakings with which we're engaged and we don't have awareness or full clear consciousness of what we are doing or what is happening within us and what is happening to us. From time to time, Such awareness might arise just momentarily, but it quickly gets lost because we don't see any special value or purpose in developing that kind of awareness. But according to the Buddha's teaching, that quality of awareness is the essential foundation for the essential quality of mind that's needed for the development of both Samadhi, or concentration, and Panya, or wisdom. In order for the mind to become one-pointed, one has to go on attending to a single object with mindfulness, again and again. And in order to understand things as they really are, to see things as they really are, one has to examine them with mindfulness. So mindfulness is this essential mental quality by which we use the beam of awareness to illuminate and to understand our own experience, the bodily experience and the psychic or mental experience that we undergo continually. And this mindfulness is a quality which has to build up momentum through continuous practice. At first, when one tries to develop mindfulness, the mind strays and wanders, but by continual practice, again and again, one can build up the strength of this quality, till mindfulness becomes a very powerful force, which is capable of uncovering the deepest secrets of existence. Okay, so that is a sort of brief, very brief explanation. Maybe it's actually too much of a lengthy explanation of mindfulness. And now, in the next paragraph, the Buddha shows how one is to set up mindfulness based upon the four supports or four objects of mindfulness. And he begins by saying, herein a monk lives contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful and mindful having overcome, in this world, covetousness and grief. First of all, the word here, a monk, it's explained in the commentary that, even though the Buddha has formulated this teaching, the way it's practiced by a monk, but here the commentator says, that anybody who undertakes this practice of satipatthana can be called a monk in the sense that one undertakes the practice for the same purpose that a monk undertakes it in order to arrive at true understanding of the nature of things and at liberation then the Buddha says that the monk lives contemplating the body in the body. And then you notice in the next, in the continuation, he says he lives contemplating feeling in feelings, contemplating consciousness in consciousness, contemplating mental objects in mental objects. And this raises the question, why does the Buddha repeat the object of mindfulness? Why doesn't he just say, a monk lives contemplating the body, contemplating the feelings? Why does he say, the body in the body, feelings in feelings, consciousness in consciousness? The reason for this is to show that when one practices the development of mindfulness, one has to isolate or segregate the object of attention from anything else with which it might be confused or compounded. Usually, when we undergo a particular experience everything gets compounded together in the experience so that we don't see its different constituents. For example, suppose you've been sitting cross-legged in meditation, then the pain starts developing in the leg then as the pain maybe builds up, you try to resist it, the pain builds up, then you become angry with the pain or disappointed with oneself. And so everything is mixed together and the mind is just carried away either by aversion to the pain or by disappointment with oneself. Now, if one is practicing satipatthana, then when pain starts to develop, one will be able to isolate the different components of that experience. One sees that there is the body, there is part of the body, there are the legs that are crossed, particular bone, pressing against the ground, or one bone pressing against another. That is one foundation of mindfulness, the body. And so one might just ignore the pain and just contemplate the body sitting, body, 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 until there's the awareness only of the body. Then the pain... Is something else. That is a feeling. And in terms of Satipatthana, that belongs to the contemplation of feeling, Vedananupasana. And so one might then choose to contemplate only the feeling in that feeling, just attending to it as pure feeling, pure feeling of pain, and just observing from moment to moment the painful feeling. Not paying attention to the body or to anything else, only to the pain. Then also there is a consciousness that accompanies that experience. And if the consciousness is one which is accompanied by aversion, then one could become aware of state of mind, a mind with aversion, a mind with aversion. Then one sees that that mind or consciousness is something distinct from the feeling distinct from the body. Of course, that consciousness is a consciousness of the painful feeling, and the consciousness is aware of the painful feeling arising in the body. But one sees that the consciousness is one phenomenon, feeling is another, the body is another. Or else one might become aware of mental objects That could be the states, the mental factors that accompany that consciousness. Anger, disappointment. Maybe if one overcomes the pain, there might arise a state of triumph in the mind, a joyful state of triumph. So these are different mental objects that one might choose to contemplate. In that way, we can understand that the Buddha uses this repetition or duplication, body and the body, feelings and feelings, to show that when one chooses to contemplate one or another of the four foundations of mindfulness, one should be careful to isolate or discriminate that foundation from others with which it might be compounded. And also we can understand the repetition in another way. Usually we think of our body, our feelings, our states of mind and so on as being mine Or what I am We identify with them Take them to be I and mine and then we cling to them and hold on to them and become tied up by them. But when one develops the practice of sati one has to contemplate the object of mindfulness as simply an object of mindfulness, simply a foundation of awareness. So one contemplates the body as being only body, not my body, the body which is me, myself. When one experiences feelings, one doesn't take them to be my feelings, or feelings which are myself, but one recognizes them as mere feelings simply feelings, and so with consciousness and mental objects the same. They are just consciousness, just mental objects, not mine, not I, not myself. Okay, then, in the next passage of the Sutta, the Buddha mentions three qualities of one who lives contemplating any of the foundations of mindfulness. We're still in the same paragraph, just the next phrase. He says, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful. These three expressions point to three qualities that one needs to practice satipatthana. That is, first, ardent. In Pali, the word is atapi. Which comes from the root tap, or tapas, which means heat. And this shows the quality, the mental quality of energy, or effort, virya. That is, one has to make an effort to arouse mindfulness and then to maintain mindfulness. Then clearly comprehending signifies the mental quality of of wisdom or discrimination. This is the elementary form of wisdom. When one is developing satipatthana, one has to be clearly comprehending first to understand what kind of practices, what kind of qualities are detrimental to one's practice, to understand what kind of qualities, what kind of situations are helpful or conducive to one's practice. Then one has to be contemplating or comprehending one's state of mind. To see whether the attention is slack, in which case one has to build up more intensity of attention. But to understand perhaps one is over-exerting oneself, then one has to relax one's exertion. and then as one goes on contemplating the object one has to comprehend it in order to be able to distinguish its own qualities and characteristics so there is this quality of sampajanya which is clear comprehension or discernment we'll explain clear comprehension in greater detail later when we come to the third section of the sutta. And then, the third mental quality that the Buddha mentions is mindfulness itself. He says he's clearly comprehending and mindful. So these three qualities, energy, wisdom, and mindfulness, work together. All contribute to the process of contemplation. And as these three work together They lead to the development of another quality which is not directly mentioned here, that is concentration or samadhi. In order to see how these three qualities work together, we might take an example, say an archer who wants to hit a target with an arrow. In order to hit it, he has to string his bow with the arrow and he has to pull the bow back, pull the arrow back when it's on the bow bring it all the ways back. Pulling back on the bow with the arrow is like what? Which of these three? Energy or vigor. Then he has to see, be able to see where the target is and exactly how he should aim his arrow in order to hit the target. What is that? Excuse me? (laughs) That's clear comprehension. Being able to see the target and to see how to aim the arrow in order to hit the target. Then as he releases the arrow He has to do this very carefully. If he's a little inattentive, then the arrow will go in a different direction and miss the target. So he needs attentiveness, which is the equivalent of mindfulness. Okay, so the Buddha says that this same process of contemplation uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay, then the final phrase that comes in this passage he says, having overcome in this world covetousness and grief. Pali, vinaya loke abhija domanasan. This shows the qualities or the mental states that are opposed to the development of satipatthana. The states which have to be overcome in order for the practice to succeed the states which are actually being overcome as one develops the practice and the states which the practice will eventually completely eliminate when it comes to full success. Here what is called covetousness is actually Greed or craving, the same as craving. And grief here should be understood in effect as the same as aversion or displeasure. And so these two qualities are the two states which usually dominate the untrained mind. Usually our mind is swinging back and forth between liking, then when we like we desire, and try to get possession, then when we get possession, then we cling. And the opposite of that is aversion, We don't like something, we try to avoid it, try to eliminate it, try to destroy it. And so all the time, the untrained mind is oscillating between liking one thing, disliking another, liking something else, and disliking still something else. And when one undertakes the practice of Satipatthana, then in developing that practice, states of desire and aversion will arise. But by continuing with the contemplation, by contemplating the body, feelings, consciousness and mental objects, those states of desire and grief, craving and aversion, are gradually overcome and eliminated. Okay, so the same process of contemplation is to be applied to the body, feelings, consciousness, and mental objects. We'll, of course, explain what mental objects are later when we come to that part of the sutta. And these four objects of contemplation, those are the four foundations of mindfulness. Okay, maybe I'll ask at this point if there are any questions before we go further, just on this introductory passage itself. Okay, the first contemplation, or the first foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha now takes up for detailed explanation. This is the contemplation of the body, or in Pali, it's Kaya Anupasana. The Buddha takes the body for contemplation first, because the, of the four objects of mindfulness, the body is the coarsest, the most, we say it's the most, the easiest to observe, the most evident. As one goes from one foundation of mindfulness to another the objects get subtler and subtler or at least (laughs) from body to feelings and then it seems from feelings to consciousness there's a progression of getting going from the gross to the subtle and the contemplation of the body will involve fourteen different practices There is mindfulness of breathing, the contemplation of the postures, mindfulness with clear comprehension, the reflection on the repulsiveness of the body, the reflection on the material elements, and then nine stages in the cemetery contemplations. And the Buddha begins explaining the contemplation of the body with mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati. This meditation subject was especially praised by the Buddha himself, since the Buddha regularly practiced Anapanasati. He said that he used this meditation subject on the night of his enlightenment. In fact, he developed his enlightenment on the basis of mindfulness of breathing. And throughout his life, whenever he would go into seclusion, often he would practice mindfulness of breathing. So this is a good meditation subject for the beginning of Satipatthana practice and it can be used all the ways up to the stage of Samasambuddha. And so the Buddha sets off by explaining how one goes about the practice of Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. And he says that here a monk or a meditator goes to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty place, sits down with his legs crossed, keeps his body erect and his mindfulness alert for literally he sets up mindfulness in front of him. And it might be that many meditators today don't have the opportunity to go to a forest And if you choose a tree in a town (laughs) you'll soon gather a crowd of people watching you, (laughs) wondering what you're doing, and so you'll be disturbed. But you find any, the Buddha says, Sunyagara, an empty house. You could say a quiet room, any place where you can sit by yourself without being disturbed by others. Then you sit down, and preferably in one of the positions with the legs crossed, some choose to sit in what's called the Padma. And if you choose a tree in a town, You'll soon gather a crowd of people watching you, (laughs) wondering what you're doing. And so you'll be disturbed. But you find any, the Buddha says, sunyagara, an empty house. You could say, a quiet room. Any place where you can sit by yourself without being disturbed by others. Then you sit down and preferably in one of the positions with the legs crossed. Some choose to sit in what's called the Padmasana, that's the full lotus posture, with one leg crossed over the opposite thigh, or half lotus posture with only one leg crossed over the opposite thigh, or what's called sometimes the easy posture, which is with both legs Crossed in front, but without putting one leg over over Is the spine should be erect with the nose directly above the navel, the head up, and perhaps just bent slightly downwards, and then one sets up mindfulness in front of oneself, which is explained in the commentaries to mean that one sets up attention or mindfulness Wherever one feels the impact of the air, when one is breathing in and out, some people will feel the impact around the nostrils, some people will feel the impact of the air along the upper lip, just below the nostrils. So one makes that, one's lookout point, the place of observation, post of observation, and that's the place where mindfulness is applied. And it's said that this mindfulness of breathing is especially Suitable as a beginning meditation subject because it's something which is always present with us. It's not something which is subtle or which we have to make a special effort to bring to the mind. Like, a, for example, a casino object is something one has to either find or create oneself but the breath is something that is always happening and the training of the mind through the attention to the breath is compared in the commentaries to a farmer who wants to train a wild bull to make it tame he ties the wild bull to a post and the first day the bull is constantly pulling utterly restless always trying to break away and escape but as he tries over and over again he never can succeed in getting away so then the next day he still makes part-time effort to break away. But the rest of the time, he sits down quietly and stays near the post. The third day, every once in a while, he'll get up and try to break away. But he keeps on pulling and pulling. He can't escape, and he gives up. By the time a week has passed, then he's completely quiet, and he's easy to tame and so the mind is in the same way if one starts off to tame the mind then the mind tries to run away to pursue whatever objects come into the mind but the attention to the breath is like a post which is holding the bull Whenever the mind tries to wander, one just brings the attention back to the breath, in, out, in, out. Gradually, the mind becomes quiet and collected. Sometimes the mind will again roam, then one just brings it back, treating the touch sensation of the air just the way the bull regards that post.